0: Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, and we'll be looking there in chapter 2. We started there last evening, we'll start there again. I think there are so many good lessons that we can take from the very first things that God has to say about mankind, and uh, and so we will begin there again this evening to look at some of those things. You want to put your recorder up here? All right. Very good. Um. As was mentioned, we're going to be talking about building relationships and the importance of that. And uh, and so, as we open up to Genesis chapter 2, one of the uh, things that we noted last night as we were talking about marriage uh, is that in Genesis chapter 2, and verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Now, I know that that's obviously talking about man and, and woman and it's talking about having a companion in that sense. And so that's a, a much deeper sense and it's the deepest of companionship that you could possibly have. And I, I realize that, but setting that aside, just, just take for a moment, the concept that God says it's it's not good for man to be alone. And I think that that is even broader and can be more broadly applicable than marriage. I mean, I think that's a principle that we see going forward throughout the Old Testament and on to the New Testament, that it really isn't good for man to be alone, whether it's alone without a spouse or alone without any support of any kind. Um, I think of all the occasions where, where God uh, in some way indicates that need for companionship. Maybe one of the most uh, striking to me is Elijah. When he is uh, in, in the depths of despair, and we would understand and maybe sympathize with Elijah a little bit because there in, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 18, you've got this, uh, this culmination, this coming together of the forces of, of Baal and, and he alone standing for God, and he seems victorious. And then it just seems like it's all been for naught because after they raise up and, and slay the prophets of Baal, he's under the death penalty Immediately again, as Jezebel says, she's after his life. And so he runs and he hides there in the cave and God comes to him. And among the things God says to him is those encouraging words. There are 7,000 who have not yet uh, kneeled to Baal. And, uh, and Paul brings up that up again as he talks about that in Romans chapter 11. And so God sees fit to tell Elijah that there are other people on your side. There's other people who believe like you. And it seems to me, he tells me that because Elijah needs to hear that because it's a tough moment for him. I think in a lot of ways, we as Americans uh, are independently minded. And uh, from the standpoint of, of New Testament Christians, we have the sense that even if nobody else stood with us, we would need to stand. And that's true. That's right. But God doesn't teach us all along the way that he expects us to stand by ourselves, right? His expectation is that you're going to have brothers and sisters standing with you and that you need to be working on the relationships of standing with one another and you need to be building one another up and so I, I think that from the beginning God has recognized a need for companionship but even more importantly spiritually he has recognized that need and codified that need in so many ways and that's some of the things that we want to be looking at tonight is not only the ways that God has made that clear uh, but some of the ways that we can help uh, d- develop uh, in that manner I want to look at one more element As to the importance of relationships. And that is what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22 and beginning in verse 37, which is familiar territory to many of us, I'm sure. And there the uh, question has been posed, what is the greatest commandment? And, uh, and I, I just might say that it's, it's always fascinating to me to contemplate that sort of a question because it's the very sort of question that I think I am so afraid to give an answer to. If somebody says, what is the best something in the Bible? What's the greatest? What's the most important statement in the Bible? Um, and it's the sort of thing where I, I feel like I might say, well, it's all important, right? And, and none of it is any less important than any of the rest of it. But Jesus does not... Hesitate, but rather he answers. He said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second, he said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And so he's willing to exalt two commands above all the other commands. Now, not not in competition to all the other commands, but rather as informative to all the other commands. All the other commands fall under uh, the this, this sort of oversight and authority of those two commands. But what is the nature of those? Well, the first one is, how is your relationship with God? And then the second one is, how is your relationship with other people? And, and on these two hang everything else. And so a lot of times, uh, another aspect I think that, that can kind of come into our minds is if we're doing the right things, we're following the commands and, and we are being strictly obedient to God's laws, then what does it matter about whether or not I get along with people? Well, you see, getting along with people, that's right at the top. And so you can't say you're strictly following the commands if that's not one of the things that you're doing. And so getting along with people, it's its a foundational element of doing all the other things. And I think that's one of the things that the Jews missed is that they they missed that understanding. Another thing that I think highlights the importance of relationship is how much time Paul spends talking about, not just Paul, but all those writers of epistles. There are themes that you see throughout the epistles and uh, and some of them are very repetitive. One of the ones that's a little bit surprising to me is how often you see Paul says something about sexual immorality, for instance. It, it doesn't seem like something you would, see come, you would think would come up in every single letter, but it's just about, in every single letter, something about sexual immorality. Well, another maybe unexpected element that comes up literally, I think, in every single epistle is that of how brethren treat one another. Paul just has something to say about it in every letter he's writing. Uh, sometimes it's specific, like even names are brought up. So Philemon, of course, is going to be talking about a specific relationship between him and his servant Onesimus, who's his slave that's returned to him. Or you you might see Paul name two women, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, in in the book of Philippians. And so he he deals with some specific relationships. But at some level, he's at least dealing with generic relationships in, in just about every letter. Romans is particularly striking. Paul spends a great deal of the letter making um, uh, a case about the Jews and the nation of Israel at large and how God, God has moved on from the physical relationship with Israel and it's become a spiritual relationship. Physical Israel's lost. If you're going to be saved, you're going to have to become spiritual Israel. And that's really the first 11 chapters. And then he picks up with, with practical application beginning in chapter 12. And what does chapter 12 talk about? Love your neighbor. Right? Have a good relationship with your brethren. Even the ones that don't treat you very well, do not return uh, uh, evil for evil, but return good for evil. Don't take vengeance. Chapter 13, there's a brief discussion about the governing authorities, but then he's right back to personal relationships. And he has this to say in chapter 13, there in verse 8, um, he says, for this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, I think right here, verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. I said earlier, I think that the Jews missed the relationship nature of following God's commands. I think most Jews, certainly most um, um, of the Jewish leadership, would probably be able to say they had not committed adultery, they had not murdered anyone, they had not, oh, maybe let's say provably stolen from anyone. I don't know some of the things Jesus suggests. that Maybe they had done some of that. And and how can you prove covetousness? That's not an external thing. And so maybe they could say that they had been free from all these sorts of commands. But But what Paul says here is The point is treat your neighbors well. Now that's a point they missed because they didn't treat their neighbors well. They didn't love their neighbors. And he says the the law is fulfilled in this love for your neighbor in particular uh, in this this, uh, conversation right here. He goes on and brings that into even more practical application as he comes into chapter 14 and what's happening there. He says, look, You've got lots of different backgrounds. You're in Rome, right? You're in the seat of power. And can you imagine all the different backgrounds that would be there and the different traditions that people would come from, uh, the different perspectives people would have? And he said, that's going to that's mean some of you aren't going to feel comfortable participating in something that is biblically condoned, right? But, but maybe you just don't feel comfortable engaging in that. That would be Jew and Gentile most especially, but I'm sure there would even be more uh, disparate backgrounds than just those two. So how do you deal with that? Well, chapter 14 tells us. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning. Don't despise one another. You know, appreciate that Christ died for that one over there and and learn to get along even with those differences still intact. Even while this one is not going to eat meat and this one is, you still get along. And he carries that on over into chapter fifteen, till what we really have is almost everything Paul is saying past chapter eleven boils down to treat each other well. And so, Romans, a book that has so much doctrine, so much um, doctrine from the standpoint of like um, you know truths about our relationship through Christ and to Christ, it it ultimately. Uh, carries over into therefore you got to treat each other well right that's that's the result of all of that theology that dense theology that we see throughout the first part of the book of Romans well of course first Corinthians what's Paul talking about what's a lot about relationships he starts out you, you people have personal loyalties that are getting in the way one says I'm of a Paul I'm of Paul and another says I'm of Apollos and another says I'm of Cephas what's are you not all of Christ and why are you treating each other this, this way and i think 13 chapter 13 that chapter of love that that is familiar to us and we see it quoted a lot of times and really taken out of context not, not in a not in a, a disastrous way but taken out of context maybe quoted at a wedding or something well that's that's fine but think about it in its context there in in chapter 13 I think really every it brings everything to a head about what he's been saying to these people. You don't treat each other well. And, and he's saying that in the midst of their usage of spiritual gifts. And so here are these fantastic spiritual gifts, the gifts of tongues and prophecy and so forth. And what's the problem? Well, the key problem is chapter 13. You don't care about each other. That's your problem. That's, that's why... That's why you're making a a mockery of these spiritual gifts is because you don't care about each other. And you would dare take some gift from God that is meant to uh, build up one another, that is meant to help each other, and you use it by way of competition? What a farce. And so he brings relationship to bear on how they ought to be using those spiritual gifts. That carries over into the second book. And particularly in the second book, I think it it focuses more on Paul's relationship with the people. And why don't we have a good relationship? That kind of comes to a head in chapter 6. You've you got real good relationships with the world, but not with me and my fellow teachers. And what's the problem there? What, how could that be that you got better relationships with people outside of Christ than inside of Christ? And he asks him, what's the problem? He says, it's not us. Our hearts are wide open. And if there's not a relationship, it must be on your part. And so again, personal relationship, so much the focus of that letter. Galatians, as he, he talks about, again, there's something to the relationship between him and, and the Galatians there, or the, the teaching that he and others have done that has gotten to the Galatians. And at this point, I just want to suggest that there's more of a connection between doctrine, truth, and relationships than sometimes I think we're aware of, and and it's Paul sort of hits on it there. He says he says that passage that is frequently quoted there in the first chapter. If if anyone if if an uh, I, if if an angel from heaven even comes to you and preaches any other doctrine than that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then sometimes we think he repeats himself but he doesn't. He says if if they come and they preach anything different than that which you received. And I think the idea is recalling their minds to the relationship that they had with these brethren and with Christ before these judaizing teachers got there and started wrecking everything. And and to point their attention back there and say, "Look, now if you say that you got to have this to be a Christian, then what was it when you accepted what we said before, what was all that about? Have you not been a Christian up to this point? And so he, he presses on that relationship aspect and, and talks about their biting and devouring one another there in chapter 5 and, and 13 and 14. And don't use your, your freedoms in order to undermine each other. That would be a concept that would be repeated over and over. And we can see that back in 1 Corinthians, for instance. Of course, that Jew-Gentile conflict is is a major aspect um, throughout so many of the letters. Certainly there in the book of Galatians and Ephesians, he starts with that. In Colossians, he starts with that. And in so many ways, he's trying to reconcile these bad attitudes that come from these these different backgrounds that people come to Christ from. But in Ephesians chapter 4, as he's about to introduce that platform of unity... The various ones that he goes through. How does he start that out? He talks about having humility and love and the bond of unity. Right, That's where he starts his relationship. So it's not just having, you know, make sure you say the right things. Yes, but the, with the right attitude towards one another. And just on and on. And in each book, in some way, he's saying something. In every letter, he's, he's indicating some way in which brethren ought to show kindness and regard for one another. He talks about specifics, like over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, how you ought to approach older men and older women and younger men and younger women. And, and in some way, he's always telling people how to deal with one another and how to appreciate one another. As to the crucialness of relationships over in Hebrews chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here, the Hebrew writer is calling on people to put into place guardrails to harness themselves from the, um, from the possibility of falling away from God. And how does he do that? Relationships. Encourage one another. You watch out for each other and help each other from going down that path. He doesn't say... You gotta do it even if nobody's around. Now, I think there's some truth to that concept. I've already said that, and I think we could look other places. But notice when when it's pressed home and says, here, you want to make sure this doesn't happen. How do you do that? Watch out for one another. Be on, be, be on each each other's side and building one another up over in Hebrews chapter 10, which is a passage we so often go to. When we're talking about assembling ourselves together, what is the point of all of that s- assembling together? He says, beginning in verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so as has been so often said, we don't just turn to this passage to say there's a command. You got to do it. We turn to this passage to say, God says it's vital that you're here. He says it's so very important that you be together and that you take that opportunity. And he seems to indicate throughout this book that if you don't, your chances of falling away are very, very great. And so that you need this. I think there are some people who think they don't need it so much I'm just going to trust God on that even more than I trust myself. And when I get the feeling I don't need other people's input, I need to read passages like this where God says, yes, you do. You need that and you need to provide it for others. And so that we need to, we need to trust his guidance on that. Over in uh, first Peter, James of course has much to say about relationships and and so much of what he has to say with regards to rebuking the people he's writing to is from the standpoint of their mistreatment of each other. Right? They're, they're looking down on their brethren and putting the, the poor brother in, in the foot, at the place of a footstool and, and the rich man, the seat of honor and so forth. And so there's a lot of rebuke along those lines, especially in chapter 2. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, notice what he says there. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for what? A sincere love of the brethren. Well, I mean, we purify our souls for forgiveness of sins. We purify our souls for salvation. We purify our souls to, to get to heaven. But, but Peter highlights here, it's, it's one of the aspects is for sincere love of the brethren. So fervently love one another from the heart. One of the reasons we want to get sin out of our lives is so that we can have a better love, a more Christ-like love for one another. For, he says, you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, picking up in chapter 2, therefore putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Do you see how Peter is weaving together the aspects of of how we treat one another and salvation how we treat one another and the receiving of the truth and it's almost like you can't even separate them. All right, I want to be saved. I want to get that. And then I'm going to work on the relationship. Peter's like, whoa, whoa, what are you talking about? These things grow together. And if your attitudes toward people, if those aren't changing, then maybe you don't have the relationship with God you claim to have. That's what John says over in 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 9. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brothers in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The book of 1 John is a book that is uh, so often called on as making reference to and and, uh, teaching against the doctrines of Gnosticism, which we don't have time to go all into tonight. And that's fortunate because I don't know that I could do a good job with it. But it's a, it's a doctrinal heresy that was probably in its infancy at this point. And there's a lot of elements of it in the letter of 1 John. And yet 1 John is also this letter that has so much to say about brotherly love. Now what does this like intellectual heresy of Gnosticism have to do with brotherly love? And it seems that they just don't have much to do with each other except this. That one of the ways John combats that is by saying... I thought you trusted me, and I told you that I walked with Jesus, and I put my hands on him. And the problem is that we get distrustful of one another. We get bitter towards one another, and what happens? It opens the door for people who are saying the most ridiculous things to come in and get a foothold. Whereas before, they wouldn't have even had a chance. We've got unity. We're on each other's sides. We believe the same things and we love each other. And that person can't get their foot in the door. But there begins to be a, a, a combat and a bitterness towards each other. And we're looking for some to believe something different than that guy believes. And somebody can get their foot in the door. And I think, I think that's some of the connection that we see in the, the letter of First John is that these people have allowed that bitterness and that hatred of one another to grow. And so they're listening to all sorts of ridiculous things about the deity and the humanity uh, of, of Christ. I think there's two ways we can put relationship ahead of, of Christ. And we're talking about one of those tonight for the most part. The one is, is the obvious way we can put relationship ahead of Christ. That is that, that we we want to maintain good relationships with people and therefore we put Christ to the side. We talk about that one a lot. But there's another way we can put relationships before Christ. And that is that we will maintain bad relationships and, and therefore keep ourselves away from Christ. In other words, we'll maintain bitterness and we'll maintain hatred even at the cost of our relationship with Christ. And sometimes what we've got to do is swallow a lot of pride and be willing to to allow wrongs to be done towards us. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6 is, is allow ourselves to be defrauded and things of that nature in order to have a relationship with Christ. And so what I find then is that Having relationships and how we treat one another is—it's a universal principle. It's a universal problem, and it's—it's it's universally something that Paul had to speak about over and over and over. There's another thing that I find, and that is that when our relationships are not what they ought to be, it can affect our interpretation of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 12. And this goes a little bit along with, with what we're talking about in 1 John, allowing that false doctrine to sort of come in. In Matthew chapter 12, and in verse 7, Jesus is wrapping up a, um, a response to uh, some accusations against his disciples from the Pharisees. And so as the Pharisees have said, um, with regards to his disciples, they've been walking through the, the grain fields and they've been plucking the grains the heads of grains, to eat while they were going through the fields. And the Pharisees say in verse 2, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now Jesus has some responses to that that offer some, some difficulty sometimes trying to figure out, well, is what David did wrong or is it not? I think either way, Jesus's point is, you don't think what he did was wrong. And what he did is a lot more problematic than what my disciples just did. That's, I'm, I'm certain about that as by, by way of comparison, and so they're showing their hypocrisy. But what we find in the Old Testament is that the plucking of heads of grain was specifically condoned as an activity. It's something that was allowed, and it, it was not considered harvesting. In other words, you could go through your neighbor's field, and you could pluck those as long as you didn't grab you know, your, your sickle. Well, now you're harvesting, Right? But if you're just plucking the heads of grain and putting those in your mouth, you know, that's like, uh, well, I've gone blueberry picking before and uh, I was kind of shocked it was this same principle really, but they give you buckets, you pay for the buckets, and they say, and you can take home as many as you can eat while you're there. And I think, well, how are you going to make any money? Well, of course, what they know is you can only eat so many blueberries when you're just stuffing them straight in your mouth. They're not worried about that. God's law is not worried about that. You're not going to hurt somebody's crop by just going and, plucking the heads of grain. But what, what that does we, we recognize that what he's saying is you're not doing the same thing as harvesting the grain. Therefore you're not doing the same thing as work. Right? That's no different than picking up something and putting it in your mouth. You know, you're walking along the wayside and you put something in your mouth. And what the Pharisees were saying, look they're out there harvesting. No the law says that they're not. Specifically it says they're not. Your rules say that they're harvesting but the, God's rules Don't say that. Now, notice what Jesus says, though. You see, that's poor interpretation, right? That's that's a poor application of God's Word. That's what that is. Why? Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Now, don't miss the point here. Jesus is not saying, He's not saying that you would not have condemned these people who were actually guilty. Now He says, you've condemned people who are actually innocent. Why did you do that? Because you didn't understand the aspects of compassion, love for your brother. You see, that's the part you didn't get. And if you had appreciated that, in other words, if you had looked upon these disciples with the love and care that you have for David, with the love and care that you have for the priestly class who break the law on the Sabbath they don't really break the law but they go and do what God tells them to do on the Sabbath which is working and if you had had that kind of mindset when you looked at these disciples you wouldn't have condemned them and don't we do that sometimes we look at somebody and we say I don't know about that and why don't we know about that because we don't like that guy but then somebody else that we do like does the same thing and we think well I wonder if there's something to that maybe I need to go talk to him why because it's Because somebody I respect, somebody I love. I assume they got a pretty good reason for doing that. But if somebody we don't like, we assume it's a bad reason. And so our attitude towards our brother affects whether we... And it's not to say that our attitude is is what makes it right or wrong or our acceptance is what makes it right or, or wrong. But what happens is the way we approach them affects how we apply Scripture to them. Our attitude towards them affects how we apply Scripture to them. And it affected these Pharisees and it made them poor interpreters of God's Word. They needed to shift their attitude so that they could more clearly see God's Word and apply it better. One of the most fearful aspects of relationships over in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, and there in verse 44... We have uh, the sheep and the goats being separated. We have the, those who come and, and receive the, the good report of having done to the least of these. And uh, you did it unto me, and they received their reward. Verse 44, And then they themselves, those who are on the other side, they themselves also will answer, Lord, when do we see you, hungry, thirsty, or stranger, naked and sick, and in prison, and did not take care of you? And he will answer them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. God said, says here, heaven and hell are dependent upon the way you treat each other. And that is a striking thing when we get to wanting to boil it down to a list of do's and don'ts, and those do's and don'ts fail to take into consideration the way that we treat our brethren, we are missing out on one of the most fundamental aspects of what we will be judged on. And this is repeated. Like, this is it's not an isolated incident. In fact, I would say that it is the biggest and most crucial element of what the Pharisees miss. It's the thing that Jesus harps on over and over and over, is you don't have a proper view of the people who are around about you. Well, how do we how do we build relationships then? And I, I spend a lot of time, that's a lengthy introduction there, I know, but um, I spend a lot of time on the importance of relationship because I just think that it's so easy to overlook it because we do spend a lot of time making sure that we believe the right things and we say the right things. And I don't want to take anything away from that. What I want to do is integrate that. right? I want to talk about that along with the attitude. Talk about that along with how we should be applying that and looking at our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so over in Romans chapter 12... going back there to this uh, really lengthy uh, passage on, on how to treat others. He says in verse 10, particularly, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, Persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. We'll talk about that more in another lesson. Bless those who, perse- who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. And it goes on with many other instructions. But let's look back to the beginning of that section, or really the beginning of verse 9, but, but in verse 10 that be devoted to one another in brotherly love that idea of working at affection working to to show honor and respect and to build a relationship one another with one another is is the idea that he's pointing to here I think most of us end up with relationships with people who it is the easiest to have relationships with. We end up in relationships with people we have something in common with. And that's reasonable. I, I'm not knocking that, right? I, I don't mean you got to run away from relationships. But then we don't end up in relationships with people that we don't have things in common with. And that's a shame. And we miss out on a lot of good relationships when we only develop the relationships that really develop naturally. And what he's saying here is, You work hard at it. You work to show love to your brethren. I'll talk to people sometimes and they'll say, that guy, it is a real effort to carry on a conversation with him. And I do wonder sometimes if the other guy probably thinks the same thing. That may be, I don't know. But but regardless, if, if you're saying it's a real effort, make the effort. That's what Paul's saying here. I was talking to somebody one time pretty recently and they were they were struggling and they still are and they don't have good relationships and they said they want good relationships and I said well, what about what about this family they've got a lot of in common with you and I thought it would be easy and they said you know what all they want to do is talk about their kids and their grandkids and I'm like well that's all everybody wants to talk about in fact that's all you want to talk about and it's why we have a good relationship because when I go to them, I ask them about their kids and they love to talk about it. And do you know they never ask about mine? Which is okay. I don't get upset with them because I want to have a relationship with them. But what, they want relationships with people who want to put them first. It's not going to work. There are relationships that don't take any hard work, that don't take any effort. They'll say things like, you know, they just we just don't have similar interests. I'm like, I don't have similar interests. I figured out what they were interested in and I brought it up so they could talk about it. And now we have a relationship. But they don't realize that they've never turned that around to try to figure out what I'm interested in. Now sometimes to have relationships with people, you're going to have to forego your own interests. You're going to have to put them first. That's what Paul did to reach people with the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's what he says. He says, become all things to all men. So I might by all means save some. If that means I've got to immerse myself in Jewish culture that I have left behind, I'll re-immerse myself in it. If that means I immerse myself outside of Jewish culture, I'll do that. I have had conversations about soccer, which I have no interest in. NASCAR. NASCAR which I have no interest in. I will have conversations with people about sewing. I had a conversation two weeks ago with a guy who was a chemical engineer that spent 30 minutes telling me about a process they had developed. And he says, isn't that interesting? And I was like, I'm sure it is. (laughs) But I want that relationship. I I don't care about what he was talking about, but I care about him. I don't want him to know that. And the reason I want to sit here, sit there and listen to all of that is because I care about him. That redounds to some of the things we were saying about husbands and wives. Some people say sometimes it's such, a, it's such an effort to carry on a conversation one way or the other. Make the effort. Work at it. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to the other. So that you can have that relationship and don't lag behind in diligence. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Well, they're all happy, but things aren't going well in my life. Okay, but they're going well in their life. And so be happy for them. I've seen brethren get so jaded and jealous because other brethren are having a good go of it and they are not. And just be happy for them. And then I've seen brethren who are callous towards their brethren who are hurting and say, well, they're just such a downer. Well, yeah, they got a lot of weight right now. Go and put your joys aside for a moment and sit and cry with your brother. That's what we do. We work at that. We talked about the holy kiss on Sunday, Romans chapter 16 and verse 16. He gives that instruction here to the the church at Rome. Greet one another, he says, with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And I've said Sunday, I I don't practice the literal holy kiss, though it has been practiced on me uh, unawares before. It caught me before I knew it was coming. But, uh, But I do think this. I think we've got to show people in whatever way is appropriate, that we love them. And there's some people that don't want you to grab them up in a big old hug, Evan. And they sir sure don't want you to grab them and kiss them. But, but they enjoy a hearty handshake and a, and a look in the eye. And you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference between somebody that's really trying to show you, you, you mean something to me. You're important to me versus somebody that's glad-handling and kissing babies and trying to get elected for something. And so what he says is, when you, when you see each other, show each other that you care about each other. And there ought to be that. There ought to be that warmth among brethren, and it ought to be visible. I don't know, I don't know uh, that we can come up with a universal way of showing that. Every, every place I go, every culture I go, I've I've spent time and I've spent time in many, it seems to be a little bit different, but everybody's got a way of showing that care and that love. And we need to be people who, if somebody walked in, they'd say, I tell you what, that's a close knit bunch of folks. Those people really seem to care about each other and to, to want to show kindness and affection. And can I say this about that, that. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give, give all my possessions to feed the poor, And if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. I'm going to tell you what, somebody that literally gives all their possessions to feed the poor, wouldn't you think that would mean they they have love? I mean, don't you think that would be a, a good communicator of that, that they gave? I think what he's saying is it's possible to do that and not have love. What about somebody who gives their body to be burned? Would you say that he's got, well, you might say he's got love for God. But I think there are people who are utterly devoted to doing the right thing, but not necessarily to loving the brother. And there is a distinction between just gritting your teeth and doing the right thing and actually having a care and affection. And so he says you can go the extra mile and you can do lots of things and you can take a a dish over to your sister in Christ who is sick or has just had a baby or some other ailment or sorrow and take that food over there all the while saying, I did my duty. And Paul says, and you can go straight to hell doing that because it doesn't mean a thing if you don't really care about them that there's got to be some substance, there's got to be some heart behind that, some, some reality to what's going on there. And he says it can be fake. And it can be fake even when it's extreme. You know, there are people who do a lot and they still really don't like each other. And I know that's, that's shocking. And he's, he's talking in extremes there. I think about God and how He's approached us. And does God look down on us and say, these miserable wretches, I will show them I love them, whether they like it or not. Or is it it a picture of tenderness? Is it a picture that God really does want a relationship with us? He's not just rolling His eyes and going, these people i got to get him out of another mess and another... Oh, that John three sixteen. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The, the, the notion is that God desires to be near us. Desires for us to be near Him, I should say. And so He will put everything out there and He will... Talk about inconvenience. He will go far beyond inconvenience and devote Himself to, to getting a relationship with us. And if we don't have one, it sure won't be for his lack of trying. It'll be for our utter rejection of all that he's done. And so don't just grit your teeth and say, well, I'll get along. That's, that's not even good enough. You say, I, I really wanna, I really want to have a bond. I really want to be close and to be dear and 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 to think of my brother as dear to me and so that I'll work on that. And if you say, well, look, I just don't know what to tell you. They get on my nerves. Well, I think of the people who get on your nerves, but you figure out a way to love them. I think of families in which people say all sorts of insensitive things to each other. And, and people are, are just so weird. And I have, I have family that is, they're just, they're weird. And, and I know I probably am too. And we roll our eyes at each other. And we think sometimes, why did they do that? And why did they say that? But there is no question at the end of the day, we work hard to be close together. And we put those things aside. Why? We say, well, because we're family. And we don't let people talk bad about our family. We take up for our family. Well, this is our family. And we ought to have those kind of attitudes. And we ought to be able to overlook a whole lot of things because, I mean, we're a family, right? Only this family is more tightly knit with stronger bonds than the ones that we've ever had on this earth. And it ought to look like it. And I think that that's one of the, the most pressing elements. And I think it's an element that often we overlook throughout the New Testament. It's just a drumbeat that's consistent from beginning to end. That you ought to care more about each other. And you ought to develop those relationships. Don't just wait and see if they come. You go in search of them. Go in pursuit of them. If you're not a Christian this evening, you, you ought to know, you should know, that you are being pursued by as we've already suggested, for a relationship with God. And His patience has not been exhausted yet because you're here and you're still breathing. And you still have an opportunity. And His arms are wide open. And He calls you to come to Him. And He is not, he is not so frustrated with you, though we all frustrate God, <laughs> I, I have no doubt. He is not so frustrated with you that He does not still not... Not simply just say, come and I'll let you in the door. No, He, he calls tenderly to you. He says, come to me. And my, my burden is light. I will give you rest. And so would you heed that tender call? And would you come to Him now and bow the knee before you are at one day made to bow the knee? And so begin an everlasting relationship with Him. If we can help you in any way in that, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?